It's my pleasure this morning to welcome our guest uh, speaker. Uh, he's a guest, but he's also part of our church, and that's Logan Craft. I'd just like to give him a welcome as Logan comes on up. <clears throat> Logan, with his family, live in Katikati, uh, and yet he's a native of the great state of Texas. And so you're going to hear a little bit more about that. Um, but the, the reason why I've asked Logan to speak this morning is um, Logan's been involved with a, an apologetics group called Thinking Matters. And uh, his topic in that arena has been uh, talking about freedom of speech. And so what has freedom of speech got to do with us as a Christian community? Well, you'll find out a little bit more about that in the future. But we, uh, sorry, today. But as a nation, we know that... Um, we're coming to a time of uh, the end of the next year, the election. We're going to have referenda on um, euthanasia, uh, the use of marijuana. And of course, the issues around abortion are all up for grabs again. And um, so these conversations are here now. They're present. They're right in front of us. And so I'll be thinking in the back of your minds today as you hear Logan speak, um, have that going through your mind and just allow that to sort of be touched and tempered by what it is that Logan says to us. So Logan, um, he'll explain to you some of his own story, uh, but for now, let's give him another warm welcome. Thanks, Logan. Mm -hmm. Thank you, God. <laughs> for having Craig ask me to come and speak today. I'm grateful to be here. Uh, my wife, Barbara, and our two daughters, Sarah Catherine and Annalise, we are part of BBC. We regularly attend here, and we've supported the church for some time. We have some warm relationships with some other churches in the Bay of Plenty uh, since we've been here for four years. And one of the things that was very welcoming to us when we saw kind of the diversity within BBC when we first attended here, which was, the, this was the first church we attended actually when we moved to Bethlehem and um, Michaela helped us get our first home in Bethlehem. Our daughters go to Bethlehem College and Jan Hodges uh, arranged for that transaction. It was really a warm welcome, but we also noticed uh, very overtly that you all had um, some Americans on your staff and three or four now, I think is the number. And Barbara and I growing up in Texas and living in Texas, we visited America a number of times, <laughs> and we like Americans. And so we thought they were a nice addition to your Kiwi staff. Um, Americans are not as nice as Canadians, um, and not quite as smart, truly. But anyway, it's good that they're here. <laughs> so uh, I've got a background in a number of things. Uh, which would be the reason, I guess, that Craig and some others have asked me to speak on this controversial topic this morning. And uh, one of those things I was involved with was I was a film producer, as well as a television producer. And so before we left Texas, um, we were um, happy to have seven of our friends give us a cameo goodbye that I was able to capture on film. So I thought I'd show you right now.
we miss those guys. <laughs> so I was managing a family ranch in Blanco County, which is west of Austin, where we lived as well. And uh, Blanco happens to have the distinction of being the home place of Lyndon Baines Johnson, who was actually one of the first presidents who visited New Zealand, if you're old enough to remember that. And he also had the distinction of being one of the most corrupt politicians in US history. <laughs> Blanco County never voted for a Lyndon. Um, anyway, I kept the, the camera rolling when we moved to New Zealand. Ultimately, we moved to the delightful and charming farming community of Caddy Caddy and uh, surrounded by orchards and grazing blocks and little farms and some big farms too. And so we wanted to show you some of our new friends there. Well, so cultures do differ, even though we may look similar, and even though we speak a separate language, <laughs> or the same language, English. Um, things are different in New Zealand from Texas, and we're happy to be here. We, we came for reasons that are, were personal and also just adventurous. And so we find ourselves really happy as a family to be here and to be a part of your world and your community. And uh, we think you all have some important contributions to make, uh, just as a culture to the world that y'all have been making for as long as your existence, and that the Christian community in New Zealand, we feel like is an important part of the Christian community globally. It has a distinct history, kind of a unique history, and I think it probably has a unique future and something that we can all be happy to be a part of. So your calling as a Christian and the fact that you are a Kiwi probably, um, or an immigrant to New Zealand, uh, may be very important in the future. Um, so speaking about this subject of freedom of speech, it's a complex matter. It's, it's hard to cover it in a short sermon on a Sunday morning. Uh, the issues are uh, sometimes difficult to apprehend, to get a handle on, um, but we, we feel in our time, I think, if we're awake at all, that uh, there's some rumblings around this issue. And I suppose that one of the first places that I personally was confronted with this as an American was when I produced a film uh, exploring freedom of inquiry, which also is directly tied to freedom of speech because if you inquire, you need to write about it. And that was in the, the whole area or the estate of science. And we made a film exploring some of the controversies surrounding Darwinian evolution. And that film was released as a exploratory investigative documentary where we found that many scientists, many of them, perhaps most of them, not even Christians, not even uh, theists for that matter, uh, had some real problems with some of the strict formula of Darwinian evolution and they didn't think the scientific evidence was really measuring up to supporting that theory. Uh, not in every respect. And so we made a film about it and it was a film therefore about censorship within the institution of science, whether the, in, in universities or in research uh, institutions, and then the film actually itself, which was called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed, which came out in 2008, and was, when it came out, 
the leading documentary in the United States. I say that only to, to explain the interest that surrounded this story and this issue. And ultimately, the blowback, uh, which we never expected as the producers of the film, uh, the blowback from that was astounding. First of all, the reception. We never expected the film to do what it did. Uh, that was a shock. But also the fact that we were sued by three different um, institutions or organizations. We were actually sued by Harvard University. We were sued by Yoko Ono. Um, believe it or not, we were sued by other parties. And we won all those lawsuits at, at fairly great expense. Um, but the gist of the matter was they were trying to shut our film down while it was actually playing in the theater. So they wanted to, to remove it from the theaters and take it out of circulation. And documentaries get a kind of a long uh, lifespan as movies go in theaters. And they just wanted to cut it out on DVD, cut it out on pay-per-view. Pay they, they wanted to kill our film. And that was a, a real awakening on the issue of censorship. Now, I had some prior experience to this, too. And uh, covering the issue of freedom of speech, particularly as it relates to religious people, people with spiritual beliefs. And that was, I had a television program that I produced and presented called Church and State with Logan Kraft uh, in the United States. And I've got a short clip here. What's tragically wrong with, and indeed spells the end of democracy, the separation of the people's convictions, deepest convictions from the political process. You're saying these convictions flow from many of them, maybe most of them out of their religious They are inseparable from. Here's what it says. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Or prohibiting the free, free exercise thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech, press, etc. The now, whole purpose of that, of those 16 words, which have been in the last 45 years. Misinterpreted, in your opinion? Especially by the Supreme Court, by its own admission. So I started producing that program when I was 14, as you can tell by the, the video clip in there with my mustache. So um, on that program, we covered a lot of these issues. And of course, some of them would be very distinctive to Americans. And as a Kiwi, you might not relate to a constitutional form of government in the same sense, because it's not exactly the same here. But the freedom of speech is very much uh, a guaranteed understanding on the part of the citizenry of New Zealand and other Western countries, particularly those influenced by the, what we'll call the Anglosphere, English-speaking common law, um, influenced by the jurisprudence of Great Britain, that's New Zealand, that's the United States, that's Canada, Australia, and many other countries scattered around the globe that were or are part of the Commonwealth, or that used to be, like the United States before they had a revolution. Now that brings up an important point, because um, many observers would see that one of the key differences between, say, a Kiwi, a native Kiwi, and an American, a Native American, in their understanding of the freedom of speech would differ markedly as it's to its origin. What do I mean by that? Well, we, we may hold freedom of speech as important, but for an American versus a Kiwi, it's different because America compared to New Zealand is quite frankly a, a much more radical, revolutionary, and even more violent society all the way back to its beginnings. I'm not saying there wasn't any violence in New Zealand. We all know that there was. I'm not saying that there haven't been some radical governments uh, from time to time in New Zealand who've done some very severe things. That's occurred. 
But the United States had a revolution, it had a very serious civil war, um, and it had a big change in the government about 80 years after that civil war, which reconstituted the entire thing, and then its social revolution that affected all the Western countries that occurred in the 1960s was also quite extreme. It's a radical culture. It has the possibility of radicalism and revolutionary behavior to break out from time to time. Americans see the freedom of speech differently from Kiwis in the opinions of these observers, which I agree with, and that is they see it as a personal right. As an American, we view it as my right, not even our right. It's mine, personally, individually. Uh, for Kiwis, not so much. Uh, the freedom of speech and the ability to share your ideas is more based upon the idea of fairness. It's fair to do that because it's better if we all together, we collectively, have that ability because that's going to result in a more just, equitable, egalitarian society. For an American, reaching the common good is always through me as an individual, my rights endowed on me either by God or by nature. For a Kiwi, psychologically and emotionally, the observers say that's not so true. It's not that there's not an element of that, but it's a much more community-oriented understanding of why the freedom of speech would be important. I happen to think those observers are largely correct. Now the point is, is whether you come to this from uh, a too individualistic position, which American society is, in many people's opinion, too individualistic, or from a Kiwi understanding, which is a more community-oriented and a more collective understanding, some observers would say maybe sometimes too collective, if you're trying to make changes to your house in the Bay of Plenty, <laughs> and deal with the Western Bay of Plenty Council. Any employees here? So the point is, as you come out to a similar place, and that is that the freedom of speech is important, either for me or for us, and it's a sort of a platform. It's a foundational freedom for all the other freedoms that we might hold dear, like the freedom of inquiry, the freedom of expression, the freedom of religious expression. So that the freedom of speech is a foundational freedom, it's a foundational right, or activity, if you're more comfortable with that, that undergirds or underlies many others. In fact, in one sense, all others. Because if you can't speak about freedom, okay, or liberty, or activity, if you can't criticize, then, you know, that's a problem. Well, many people think that that freedom of speech, or that right to freely speak, is under threat in the West in general, and in the countries influenced by the Anglosphere particularly. Now, we all know, let's all admit, that the world historically and the world at present does not enjoy unlimited or even marginal freedom of speech in many, many places. Maybe even in most places. It doesn't exist freely, obviously, in communist countries, whether former or present, and it doesn't exist freely in Islamic countries where the state is tied inevitably to the religion of Islam. 
There is not freedom of speech on any number of subjects differing from country to country and culture to culture in those kinds of civilizations and those kind of societies. We all know that. And very few people living in the West would want that kind of tyranny or that kind of limitation or restriction put upon us, would we? I mean, that's not really what we like to emulate. That's not a part of our history in its development. We've gone from less freedom in this area to more freedom, to most freedom. In fact, we were the standard bearers, the beacons of the world in this right to air our grievances publicly, to speak freely about controversial issues, to criticize our own governments and the governments of others. And we would see it in one way or another as the foundational freedom. And as Christians, we would see in the story of the New Testament and the story in the development of the church, particularly if we're Protestants or evangelicals or charismatics, we would see the Reformation as that same principle unfolding as we need more freedom. We need more freedom than society or the church that existed then allowed us. So this is intrinsically tied to being a Protestant Christian or a non-Roman Catholic. And Roman Catholics have now obviously, and for a long time, embraced this largely or entirely. So are the people that criticize the present development accurate? Well, this is what they say, according to Jordan Peterson. He says, freedom of speech protects our societies from the shipwreck of tyranny and from nihilism and despair. There is nothing in the absence of freedom of speech but tyranny and slavery. Well, that's a pretty extreme statement. Free speech is so fundamentally important that restricting it in any manner carry a serious risk. Across the rest of the world, we are at risk. How? Well, by being deplatformed as a speaker at a university or an academy or a college across the globe, being denied entrance because your viewpoints don't match up perfectly with the present political establishment or the cultural elite, that happens to pin most of the articles and editorials in the leading newspapers and magazines of the day. You can be deplatformed, denied access. You can be removed from Google. You can be removed from Twitter. That is under attack. And the reason that Peterson and others are alarmed is because they would say, apart from whether you come to freedom of speech as a personal right or as a collective good, that the real problem for them is that without freedom of speech, we make poor decisions. Why? Well, we make poor decisions because we don't have enough information. We make poor decisions because people are somewhat binary. They like to look at contrast and comparison. It's the way we're set up. So we need to hear the other story. We need to hear conflicting accounts about the information. We need all the data. I'd like to see all the research, not part of it, please. We'd like to know what is behind the curtain. And if the curtain is drawn, if the box is sealed, then we're only hearing one side of the story, one account instead of both, or several, or quadruple, or however many accounts there may be. No freedom of speech. No freedom of inquiry, poor decisions personally, poorer decisions societally. Are we seeing some of that today? I mean, we've always known that some bad people are running things. 
in whatever kind of institution you can point to, including governments around the world. Now remember, I'm speaking as an American, so we're a bit iconoclastic. We easily criticize the government, and we're not naturally compliant as a culture or as individuals. I recognize that about myself. But you can be too compliant, can't you? And too kowtowing to any government, and agreeing because the mass of people say it's the right thing. I mean, you can be too much that way too, right? And that can lead to bad things. Well, some of your own Kiwis have said that there is a problem that Jordan Peterson and others point to. And they raised the alarm some years back. I don't think that they were required to raise the alarm for us to know that something's going on. But if you're awake at all, you can see that there is a potential erosion on this absolutely fundamental freedom of speech. So if we don't hear both sides of the story, are we gonna to come to the right conclusion? President Luisi uh, in the media uh, and also in almost all governmental bodies, a juggernaut surrounding the issue of climate change, formerly called global warming. That had to be changed because the globe wasn't warming enough, quickly enough. So we've got two different positions here. One, a book called A Farewell to Ice, and the other one called The New Ice Age. I read information uh, from credible sources that actually we're headed into a period that could be either one of these. I don't know. I'm mainly concerned about the issue because I'd like the world to be preserved and last for as long as possible for my children and grandchildren, also because maybe more pointedly, I'm uh, concerned about how it's going to affect our taxes. <laughs> Which I'm quite certain is the end game of the politicians involved in the issue. Without question, in my opinion. You may have a different opinion, but let's talk about it. I'd like to hear your opinion. But if you can't, because you're told to shut up or you're deplatformed from uh, coming over to my house and sitting at dinner and talking to me or pinning an article, then I can't ever hear from you. So I'm gonna be dumber rather than smarter. Now in New Zealand, as in most countries in the West, you can find all kind of radical, revolutionary, uh, controversial material in the public libraries and in the bookstores. Uh, they circulate freely. Now these are books that call for sedition, revolution, the overthrow of governments by violent means, all these things. These uh, books and many of these philosophies and ideologies, a, a type of secular ideology, are embraced, are embraced by the, um, by the elite in certain sectors and the non-elite in all kinds of sectors. And so these viewpoints which call for revolution are something that I don't believe a Christian is ever called to based upon the biblical witness. I don't see how a Christian would ever be called to overthrow the government by violent means. And I say that as an American. <laughs> I mean, I'm a conflicted guy. I think I would have had to gone to Canada, which a lot of people did. Some of them tarred and feathered with all their goods stolen. You know, the original American Revolution was more like what we think of today as a communist revolution. If you look at the history of the thing, it was just crazy what they were doing. It was a radical time. Confiscation of goods, all kind of refugees had to disperse, violence untold. So the point is though, there are all kinds of books out there now that advocate this, but I'm not advocating that for a Christian because I don't think the Bible does. 
It's an interesting place we're in as Christians. We're not allowed to enter into revolution or sedition or treason, but we're called in every generation in our time to some type of, some form of civil disobedience on some issue. You don't get to escape. I don't get to escape. There's always an issue, the larger culture and the government that it is under is always in direct odds against God's viewpoint, what God wants and what God has told us in scripture. Well, let me run through the list real quick of some of the books that are available. The Communist Manifesto by Karl Marx. Mein Kampf, My Story by Adolf Hitler. Mao's little red book called The Red Bible of Sino-Communism. Humanist Manifestos 1 and 2, which offers some very radical, radical uh, measures to reduce population and to control society. The LGBT Manifesto, uh, this would have been illegal sometime back in New Zealand. It's now uh, legal, of course, and uh, promoted by the government. And pedophilia, that's pretty controversial. You can find that in the libraries in New Zealand. Well, should those be allowed? Should those... Writers and authors have freedom of speech. I think e even on the most controversial one, most of us as Westerners, as citizens of New Zealand or whatever other Western country would say, well, yeah, it's unfortunate, but you know, they need to be able to tell their story. I disagree with them vehemently, but I also agree that you know, for reasons of equity and for reasons of personal freedom, they have a right. Okay, but what about the Bible? That's a controversial book, or rather it's a controversial library, isn't it? A library of books and letters and poems, stories, prophecies. There are large and loud voices now calling for the censoring of biblical material, biblical scripture. You can go online now and read about a Finnish member of the government, of par their parliament, their senate, who posted a particular scripture and is now being tried criminally for just posting a scripture publicly. So what do we do as Christians when we live in a time when the freedom of speech allows books uh, as controversial as uh, Marxism and as pedophilia to be openly aired and uh, at the same time we live in, there are calls now, increasing calls from the media, from the avant-garde um, arts and from various people in the government jurists, legislators, others around the world calling for the censorship of scripture and for the censorship of those who would speak out on matters of scripture. You see, because we, on one hand, we have the issue of freedom of speech simply because we happen to be citizens or subjects. I think here we're subjects, am I right? Is that correct? To Queen Elizabeth II. So see, I've repented as American. I've come and I've knelt before the queen and said, I am your, I am your subject again. Okay. That reminds me of a story from Oscar Wilde uh, at a dinner party. Oscar, who was quite a witty guy, he said, uh, he, he made the case, he said, I can make a witticism up about anything that anybody at the table mentions. So someone who was a pretty bright person immediately said, Queen Victoria, and he said, ah, but she is not a subject. <laughs> so 
so the issue is now for us is turning to scripture to look at what the Bible says, not so much about how we approach freedom of speech as a citizen, as a good citizen, or a loyal subject, but rather as a Christian. Because the two are related, but they're not the same thing. And this is one of the things I'd like us to get clear in our heads, in our hearts today. The freedom of speech that we might fight for as a citizen would be a bit different than the freedom of speech we might fight for as a Christian, that we might hold dear. Because they're related, but different. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that the um, national government passed a new law that said the maximum speed limit anywhere, uh, whether it was on, a, on a, a national highway or any other road was, was 40 kilometers an hour. Okay, we, we actually had a law that was similar to this in the US under President Jimmy Carter. He passed a law, you couldn't go over 55. The reason was we were trying to save energy and we were supposedly running out of oil and gas, which has proved not to be the case, but Jimmy didn't know better then. So he passed this law, it was kind of a dumb law. And ultimately it was revised. But let's suppose they did that in New Zealand and you decided, I, you know, I really don't like that law. That's an that's a, that's a inconvenient law for me to go 40 kilometers an hour everywhere all the time with never a deviation. And the government said at the same time, oh, and by the way, you cannot publish any decree, statement, commentary, in any way that criticizes this new measure. Okay, well, both of those really have to do with us as citizens, not as Christians. Christianity doesn't speak to the speed limit. God, I guess, has more important things to talk to us about. But the point is, is that's a, that's a citizen subject issue, not a Christian's issue. However, when they ban your right to criticize their policies, then that becomes moving towards being a Christian issue. Because if they ban it there, what else are they gonna ban it on? Something really important, not just the speed limit. What if they say abortion is legal? Okay. And they go from there to saying, abortion is not only legal, but it's mandated. If you have over a certain number of children, or if you are a particular kind of person. You see the difference between those two? They're there, that's a wide gulf. Okay, what if they say euthanasia is allowed? There's one for our time right now. Euthanasia is allowed. It's allowed because we're running out of money in our uh, medical funds across the West and our governments and we've got to find a way somehow to save costs. That's probably the real pragmatic reason they're pushing it. I'm guessing. But beyond that, there's a whole ideological philosophical issue around that besides the tax money. So it's one thing to say, well, yeah, euthanasia is allowed for the person, or if they're not cognizant, for the people that will inherit their money. Versus euthanasia is mandated in a certain condition for you and for everyone. Ooh, that's quite different. It's like Logan's Run. Sandman's coming. You see? See the difference? And what if on any of those issues they said, oh no, you can't speak or criticize about the issue. You can't speak out against this issue publicly or you'll not only be deplatformed and denied tenure and removed from your position as a teacher, you'll actually be fined or you might even be sent to jail for any number of crimes or offense. 
related to your criticizing a controversial policy that you don't agree with, not only as a citizen and as a subject, but as a Christian. Well, let's look quickly at the book of Acts. This is for show up here because I can read it up there. It's a bit like an eye test. So what's happened here, this is a postscript to the series on Peter. The high priest rose up and all who were with him and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. That's a reference to the Sunday evening services that are studying angelic beings. So I kind of got both of them in there in one scripture. I thought that was kind of clever. And said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And that, of course, means the gospel, the Christian life. You, you remember this harkens back to what Jesus told the, the disciples who are going to become the apostles. Like, go and make disciples and then teaching them everything I have commanded you. Oh, and by the way, the Holy Spirit will come and he'll teach you more. So it's not just the central part of the gospel, which is God has appeared. God the Son has come as a human being. He's revealed his glory. He's taught us. He has died for our sins, our wrongdoings. He has covered us in forgiveness and mercy. He gives us the grace of faith to believe in him. And we're granted a relationship with God that is restored and plentiful and the Holy Spirit then indwells us and lives in us and with us. And with that promise comes an eternal life that is without end in union with God and other redeemed people and all those who love God and are in relationship with him. That's the gospel in its core. But there's a whole lot else to the gospel. How we're supposed to order our marriages, how we're supposed to live as people, how we ought to be in society, what we ought to do with our money and our resources and our talents, how we are each gifted in particular ways, which brings up an important point, how we're gifted in particular ways. Because most of you actually don't need, or at least not very often need, the freedom of speech. I know I've been pontificating on this now, this morning about how important it is, and we all agree that it is, but you actually don't need it. You don't need the freedom of speech. You need the freedom to hear. You need the freedom to listen. Because the number of people who actually speak about anything that's controversial are very few in number. And it is doubtful that most people are called to speak publicly or relentlessly or profoundly on those issues, but they are for sure granted the right, the privilege by God to hear. We're all to speak the gospel as Christians, and we're all to speak in those situations where God calls us to pipe up and not be quiet, right? But those who actually are called to speak are few in number, and all of us are called, everyone, to listen. So really what we need mostly is the freedom to hear. And they're coupled together. No freedom of speech, no freedom to hear. No freedom to listen. Shut down, shut out. In this we see that the apostles are originally challenged by the political and relig religious establishment. Remember, I've already made the case that Christians are not called to sedition, to treason, to revolution, to radical overthrow, nor to violence. I think that is a fundamental Christian principle. 
However, we see the apostles setting the example for us, and through the pages of Acts, we see this in all the letters of Paul attesting to it, that although not called to sedition or treason, Christians are frequently called, particularly the leaders and particularly the spokespeople, they're called to civil disobedience. What does that mean? Well, a lesser government, that is the Sanhedrin, under a higher government, the highest government of God and the kingdom of God is subordinate. So it would be like the Bay of Plenty asking you to do or not do something that the federal government, the central government of New Zealand requires you to do. Well, that's the example we've got here. It's the same principle. An angel of the Lord has come and said, go and tell the people all the things about this life in the temple. And the apostles had been commanded by the lower government not to do that. So who's in rebellion? Well, the Sanhedrin is and the high priests. And so here's the principle. We are as Christians to obey the highest form of government and the highest form of government is the kingdom of God and God himself as our king. All of the governments are subordinate, friends. And although we cannot in any way engage in rebellion or sedition or treason against them, we must look to the good of the government, the society. We must pray for them. We must hope the best for them, even though we may become cynical when the facts are revealed to us over and over to us about the wrongdoing that is in these institutions. Nevertheless, we may be called in our time to civil disobedience or at least resistance on those issues that affect us. And can I say not the issues that affected our great-grandparents? Because those are not the issues of our day. If you stand up and loudly proclaim that you are against slavery or child labor, everyone will applaud you. Left, right, and center of whatever political or religious persuasion. Nobody's for those things. But there was a day when that could cost you. Not now. Now it's other issues the issues of our day. And some of you, I don't know how many, and I don't know who you are, some of you are called to speak up, to resist. Some of you are called on some specific issue, you are called in this time, and every time has its darkness, every time has its trouble. You are called to obey the kingdom of God and to obey his commandments to you. Peter sums it up when the Sanhedrin says, you're not to do this. He says that we must obey God and not men. And in response, they were enraged and they wanted to kill Peter and the apostles. That's what they were faced with, our pioneering forefathers in the faith. I sometimes wonder if I don't see any Christian leadership ever, ever in trouble with the subordinate authorities in the world, I sometimes wonder, you know, are we really being obedient to the call of our time? Now again, I don't know what the issue may be for you, and I don't know where and what, but for those of us who mainly listen, rather than speak out on those issues, I think we should support those who are called to the clear, clear understanding that God has called them to speak up and not be silent in our time. Speak up and be heard, even if it causes you trouble. And with that, I'll close, thanking you for listening to this message this morning with an iconic clip from the beloved Peter Jackson.
can't do this, Sam. I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? Folk in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going. Because they were holding on to something. What are we holding on to, Sam? But there's some good in this world, Mr. Furl. And it's worth fighting for. God bless you.